All right, there we are. Welcome to our class. I see you there, Tim, Don, Grace. Uh, and there's a fourth, but uh, hasn't checked in in the chat. So good to have you with us here this evening. <clears throat> Excuse me. For our Bible study on the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're in chapter five tonight. <clears throat> and we're going to get through, I think, the verse, first 10 or so verses. And then really there's a break um, that is the end of chapter five, all the way, th it goes, takes us all the way through, uh, through most of chapter six. So, um, we're actually going to leave that off, hopefully. Well, we might dig into it a little bit, but, uh, we'll have to revisit that. Um, I'm going to announce it now, but I'll announce it again at the end, is that, uh, next week, Thursday is Thanksgiving, and we'll have Thanksgiving Day service. I'm, we're going to skip, uh, Wednesday evening Bible study. I'm not having catechesis on Wednesday either. Uh, just going to take a little bit easy for Thanksgiving week. I think, well, you know, everybody else gets a holiday. Pastor can too, right? All right. <laughs> not asking permission. <laughs> just going to do it. And then uh, the following week is the beginning of Advent, right? So uh, we will have Advent midweek services at 7 p.m. Uh, what would that be? I don't know. Some December day. Uh, November, December 2nd, 9th, and then I guess 16th, right? So you'll have opportunity there um, to walk, to join our stream for our midweek services. So there'll be an opportunity on Wednesday nights. And then also uh, a week after that, then it'll be Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. And the week after that will be Christmas, or, uh, New Year's Day. So there'll be lots of opportunity during the week for something. So we'll, we'll just um, omit... <laughs> or actually just put on hiatus the study of the book of Hebrews until uh, after the holidays. Fair enough? Hearing no objection? <laughs> That's what we're going to do. Um, I think it's good. Then we'll be at a good kind of stopping off place anyway. All right. So chapter five, remember, um, just as a recap, last week we finished out chapter four, and that ends with this wonderful confession of um, I, I would say, actually, uh, the divine service, what it's all about, um, what we call the divine service, where God serves us with his grace and mercy, right? And you see that here at the end, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us draw with confidence near the throne of grace, right? And that's the altar. Yeah. Hmm. Question mark. Well, it's the holiday. Yeah, fair enough. Good. <laughs> Thanks for the permission. All right. Oh, you can't see what I'm looking at. You need to see what I'm looking at. All right, hold on a second here. Class plus logos. There you go. All right, so you can see there at the end of chapter 14, we have um, Jesus, the Son of God, being our great high priest. Um, hold fast to our confession. He's able to sympathize with our weakness. We'll look at that here in the next chapter. Um, tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, being true man, right? Uh, but also true God. And then, of course, we can draw now with confidence to the throne of grace. So then we talked how you know, the whole congregation now has access through Jesus um, to his body and blood upon the altar, the table, but also, which is the throne, right? Which is why we talked about architecture last time. Okay. And I think we started chapter five, but it's worth just backing up and recapping here. So uh, I'm going to use my own translation. Actually, I'm going to use the translation here from Dr. Kleinig. I think he does a good job. All right, so you can follow along on the screen. It'll be a little bit different. If you've got your Bible at home, that might be a little different yet. And this microphone. All right, I got to be able to read the book. Oh, uh, yeah, there we go. Just need another book. There's another book. Used to my office, I've got a, uh, got a book stand. Which makes it even easier. There we go. All right, now we're talking. <laughs> Thanks for being patient with me there. All right, for every high priest taken from men is appointed on behalf of people in relation to the things uh, for God, so that he may offer gifts and sacrifices on account of sins, being able to moderate his feelings, hmm, being able to moderate his feelings uh, for those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also beset with weakness. I love that word beset. We'll talk about that. <clears throat> and because of it, he too is obliged to make an offering for himself on account of sins, just as the people. 
right? Just as for the people. Moreover, no one takes the honor of being high priest for himself. That's implied there. But like Aaron, one called by God uh, receives that honor. Also implied. All right, so then verse 5. So the Christ also did not glorify himself in becoming high priest, but the one who spoke to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And also likewise says elsewhere, uh, you are a priest for eternity in the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, having offered petitions and supplications with a loud cry and with tears, to him who was able to save him out of death, and having been heard as a result of his right reverence, though being the Son, learned obedience from what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the, or became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. All right, so lots to talk about here. All right, so you know, you probably noted there's uh, two divisions to the reading. The first division is uh, verses one through four, which has to do with the high priest after the order of Aaron, and then verse five through ten, which has to do with um, with Christ as our high priest. And um, this is this is a lovely example of something that we talk about often as we read the Old Testament. And here we have uh, the preacher teacher. Uh, to the Hebrews, doing it for us so that we can we can actually get a model of how to go about such an activity, which is that of type and antitype, or antitype and type. And we sometimes just call it typology. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, it's just like a little catch in my throat. <clears throat> All right, maybe that's better. All right, good. And so the type, antitype, I should say, is is Aaron and then all the high priests after him, and then the type um, that the antitype is foreshadowing, if you like, is Christ himself, right? But in doing the type, and we could say shadow, type and shadow, Jesus being the type, the typos, the typical, right? The, the, the pinnacle, and then the shadow or the antitype, is you see how they are the same, and then but you also see how they're different, okay? So compare and contrast, I guess, is what we call it in grade school, right? Compare and contrast, these two. This is excellent. This is wonderful. Because all of the, the types of Christ in the Old Testament um, are shadows. They, they are incomplete. They're veiled. Um, they're imperfect. Right? And then we meet Christ and we see how he is the completion, the fulfillment of all of those uh, antitypes in the Old Testament. Right? So, uh, we, well, like in our morning prayer, uh, considering Gideon today and the next couple of days. Uh, Gideon is a wonderful uh, antitype or type of Jesus. Right? Um, but also incomplete, <laughs> and he himself, well, of course, being sinful. All right, so let's talk about it a little bit. I think last week we talked about the Thusia. Well, maybe, I don't know, did we actually even look at these verses? I can't remember now. So I guess we'll just dig into them again, and we'll see how it goes. All right, so you notice that it begins with that word for. <laughs> so um, the author is now explaining what he said here in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now he's going to explain um, how and why we may approach freely and boldly, and it's actually through the priest, through the high priest, the one who's been appointed by God. We do so now through Jesus, who is our high priest, our merciful high priest, appointed by God himself um, as the source of salvation for all who believe in him, as we saw here in verse 9, right? the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, who believe him. Obey and believe being synonyms. Contrary to what some people think. <laughs> um, so we have a couple different genres going on here. So the first one, again, is um, kind of Old Testament, if you like, shadow. And then, again, verses 5 through 10, the second paragraph has to do with, um, with Christ. All right, so let's see. What else do we want to talk about here? All right, so let's break it down. Let's break down one through four. Let's do that first. So before we consider Jesus, we're going to think about the authority and work of the Old Testament high priest, of the Old Covenant, right? Remember, this is um, legislated, 
right? It's in the book of Leviticus, also uh, in Exodus, I believe, right? And uh, repeated somewhat in Deuteronomy. And here, it's all in the present tense. You notice that? Is appointed to offer, present tense, can deal, is beset, is obligated, all right? You notice it's all present tense, which is uh, interesting grammatically, I think. Um, Oh, okay, so now let's talk about each part. So he is appointed by God, of course, um, on behalf of men. So he's, he's appointed to his office by God through human agents. He's taken from men, chosen from men. Um, of course, this is going to be set in contrast to Jesus. And he's there to deal with the things, that is the offerings and sacrifices for sins that are for God. So um, this, in this way, both the Aaronic priesthood and then also Jesus, they're both, they both have their authorization from the same source, right? Which is from God himself. And so uh, God is represented by the high priest in the divine service of the, of the, of the tabernacle and temple. Um, and the priest then is acting on behalf of, or as, if you want to use the word as the vicar, vicariously, um, offering gifts and sacrifices for sins representing the people before God, and then also representing God before the people. So he stands kind of in the breach. I think we talked about this in regards to the divine service as we have it, uh, where the pastor says, the Lord be with you, and you say, and also with, uh, also with you or with thy spirit, um, that that handshake is recognizing the pastor is standing between God and men. All right. Um, so not only does God appoint the man, um, but he also appoints what the man is to be doing in that office. This is true for all the institutions um, that you know in the church, right? Baptism. He appoints the use of water. That's what baptism means. And he even gives the words that are to be spoken. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, he says, take bread and say these words. Take the cup, that is wine, and say these words. All right? Um, to offer gifts and sacrifices, um, that pretty much sums up <laughs> in just a few words pretty much the whole book of Leviticus. And uh, he's going to explicate this more in chapters 8, uh, 9, and 10. Oh, and even 11. We're going to see more about these gifts and sacrifices for sins. Um, uh, talked about there. All right. And they all culminate in a burnt offering, um, the lamb that is the burnt offering, and it's incinerated. Um, notice that he kind of lumps all of the offerings and sacrifices of Leviticus at all under one category for sins. Um, but ultimately, there is kind of the culmination, which is on the Day of Atonement. And uh, that's going to be become a, a theme, especially in chapter 10. We're going to talk about the Day of Atonement. Um, so all of the sacrifices ultimately point to that high feast day, which for us is um, the Day of, of Atonement would be really uh, Holy Week, Easter. Right? So Good Friday through Easter. They, the, uh, they call it in Latin the Triduum which is Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, ending with the, the uh, Easter Vigil. All right. Uh, let's see. Was there anything else there in verse 1? No, that's a lot for verse 1. Okay. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward uh, because here's the, this import, all-important clause. He is beset. Um, perichime. He's, he's, it's, 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 whole, it's being held to him. Uh, with with weakness. <clears throat> so his own sin puts him in the same place as the people. Um, he's tempted just in the way that they are because he too um, is a sinner. And that means that he's not in any position um, to condemn, to stand above, to bring judgment upon the people because he himself is, well, he's one of them, right? He's chosen among the people. Um, so those who are ignorant are going astray. He has no he has no right um, to deal with them with anything except for um, kindness or gentleness, um, making sacrifice for their sins. So he's able to um, deal gently. I, I, I like the translation, uh, moderate his feelings for them. He's emotionally attuned to them, right? His, uh, he's sympathetic to them. I think we talked about those that word last week, right? Um, but also to God, because he has God's he's got God's institution, he's got God's word. So he knows both how God um, relates to them, and he also knows what it's like to be one of them. So it's kind of a balance um, 
of emotional affinity, if you like. Uh, note also there in verse 3, he is of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those people. Right? So not only does he feel or share their pain, um, knows their ignorance and their waywardness, um, ultimately the priest is just as condemned, the high priest, as the people when they go astray, right? Um, just as Adam was, was accused and, and rightly condemned for his sin, um, for not guarding and protecting Eve, his wife, so the high priest for the people. Um, so he too will make, always makes atonement for his own sins, sacrifice for his sins. You can read this in Leviticus um, 8, begins at his day of ordination. Then on every day of atonement, the high priest will offer sacrifice first for himself and then for the people. I think we talked about this last week in regards to the practice of the pastor, right? Oh yeah, we did talk about this. Um, the pastor communes first, and then having his sins forgiven, then he is uh, set apart, I suppose. Um, atoned for, um, and then he is uh, prepared then to make it or to offer that same sacrifice of atonement, Christ's body and blood, for the people, to the people. Mm -hmm. So he can only make offerings for the sins of the people as long as he's offered sacrifice for his own sin. Of course, this is different than Jesus, but we'll get to that in a minute. All right, now, since um, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Yeah. He's a weak sinner, the high priest, and according to Aaron, not a spiritual hero. He can't claim this position um, of himself. He, there's no character or virtue that makes him worthy of the office in which he serves. This is still true for pastors, too. There are, of course, things that pastors do to be prepared um, for, for the pastorate, right? Uh, the study of God's word, the examination of, of the uh, fellow clergy um, and the seminary faculty. Uh, of course, uh, being attentive to his own character and his own uh, prayers, etc. Uh, but that doesn't give him honor so that he deserves the office of pastor. Um, I, I actually argue, and I know this is, well, some don't like to hear this, but um, I'm actually, I would prefer the pastor be reluctant. <laughs> okay. That isn't to say I don't enjoy the work that I do. I do. Um, but it's not always easy, and sometimes I don't look forward to it. It's not even just that. Um, there are a lot of things in this world I'd probably rather be doing, at least according to my flesh. Um, but I take joy in the work that the Lord has given me to do because he's called me into the office, despite myself, despite all the things I could spend my time and effort on. Um, he's called me to this office, and he's given me to do this. So um, same thing with, with Aaron, right? He didn't aspire to the office, but the Lord called him out. Um, I would say my, my patron saint would be Jonah, <laughs> who refuses to go, refuses to go, and the Lord will make him go, kicking and screaming sometimes. Um, those who aspire to the office, I mean, they do aspire to a noble calling, there's no doubt. Um, but on the other hand, <clears throat> reluctance, I think, is a mark of humility when it comes to this office, because it is a high office. And it's not one of spiritual superiority over the people. You know, Aaron was not above uh, the people, again. He had to make sacrifice for his own sins as much as for them. Um, but he is honored because he's called by God, because God has set him apart, because of the divine call that he's been given, um, not because of his own moral superiority, virtue, or power. All right. So that's, that's the Aaronic priesthood, and that's set up here in verse 4. Now, again, that's the antitype or the shadow. Now, um, the writer, or excuse me, the preacher teacher here to Hebrews is going to compare to Christ. Jonah, Moses, lots of folks. Yeah, actually, pretty much every prophet <laughs> is reluctant. Uh, here I am, Lord, send me. Yeah, right. Uh, Moses, I'm the only one. Or not Moses. Um, uh, it's uh, Elijah, right? I'm the only one left. I'm going to die. Abe's going to kill me. I'm hiding in a cave. No, there's, there's more. Don't worry. Just do what I tell you to do. Get over it. Get over yourself. Um, this is actually, uh, this, what we just studied with the children, um, today I'll study with the day school children in the morning, um, is the calling of St. Um, Paul, but when he's Saul, welcome Timothy, um, so when Saul is called, uh, he's called by Ananias, a disciple, uh, in Damascus, and, uh, Ananias is quite reluctant, <laughs> because Saul, of course, is a persecutor of Christians, or has been, um, and, uh, yet the Lord says, uh, I'm going to make something great of him of him. Uh, just do what I say. 
and it's it's brilliant ananias um the reluctance he has is well it fades away and he does what the lord commands him i'm sure he still felt reluctant but he trusts in the lord that's what faith is i will do what you say all right so now compared to jesus um jesus is similar to the high priest in the temple of course he is he is a high priest but note he doesn't claim to be high priest uh by himself of his own right all right so that's actually similar uh, to aaron right uh, but rather, he's not chosen from amongst the people either, right? But rather, he was appointed by him who said to him, that would be the Father, right? God himself glorified him by placing into the office. And then he quotes two Psalms. Um, this is Psalm, this is Psalm 2, I believe. Is it not? Uh, and then, no. And then Psalm 110. That's right. All right. So we have Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, verse 7. Those are those two. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Right? So obviously the Father is speaking. Um, so he differs from the other high priests in this notable uh, respect. One, he is the son of God, and the Father sets him in place um, in his exaltation. Right? And two, his, his priesthood does not come through Aaron. Right? But it comes through, um, or after a, a different order, an eternal order, that of Melchizedek. Um, so there's actually probably five things that we should talk about. Um, so let's see, what are the five things that distinguish Jesus from Aaron uh, and all those who followed after him? All right, so the first thing is, um, we saw back in verse chapter 4, verse 15, here it is, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that's going to be different than Aaron, right? Because Aaron has to make sacrifice for his own sins right here in verse 3. You see that? All right, so that's a comparison point uh, of contrast, I should say. Um, again, he's not the son of Aaron. Sorry, we're scrolling there. But he's the son of God. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that, of course, is different. Um, he's not appointed by another man, but he's appointed by God himself as Christ, the anointed one, anointed priest. Um, he does not become priest, this one might be a little bit harder, he does not become priest through the rite of ordination, but is high priest simply by God's decree. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because notice here, um, we have this obligated offering sacrifice for his own sins. And maybe I didn't say it clearly enough. Um, there's two sacrifices that the high priest makes for his own sins. One is on the day of atonement before he offers atonement for the people. He offers atonement for himself. But the other big one is on his or, at his ordination when he is set apart as priest. Um, on that day, he makes a special sacrifice. Right? It's it's much like a baptismal cleansing, but it's actually um, uh, an offering that's made that cleanses him or prepares him for his priesthood. All right. So we have those two um, in contrast. All right. So he spoke verse two to say he's his son. Verse. Or chapter, excuse me, Psalm 2, verse 7, and then Psalm 110 um, to establish or to show what kind of priesthood he has. It's just God's own oath, and he's been established as a priest. And you remember the story of Melchizedek um, from where? Genesis, right? And this will come up again in chapter 7. So we won't talk a lot about Melchizedek now. We'll dig into that in chapter 7. Um, yeah, but he comes and appears to Abraham, right? And out of nowhere. Um, but of course, Zedek just means king, and, and Melchi, uh, what is Mel? Ah, I forget what Melchi means. Um, but Melchizedek is um, of, is the, the priest king of Salem, which of course later becomes Jerusalem. That's right. So we, we even see in Genesis this, this shadow of Christ in Melchizedek, this strange priest who appears, who comes with peace from the city of peace. All right. Um, now, there's another difference that we didn't talk about yet, which is that um, God fulfills all of this, being set apart as high priest in Jesus, at his exaltation, right? We see this referred to. He didn't exalt himself, um, but he is exalted, um, unlike Aaron and, the, and his successors, but a priest that is forever in eternity, right? So that's different. Aaron only served as priest until he died. <laughs> and so also for, well, not Hophni and Phineas, right? Were they the ones that offered the um, 
the uh the uh not sacred profane fire yeah um and i can't remember the rest um we just studied these and I, I can't remember their names anymore those priests that followed after aaron many of them we don't even know their names right um so he's a priest in uh, for eternity in the order of melchizedek a new eternal age which has already begun actually in jesus right and his priesthood is one that never ends um, but again, that's kind of unexplained at this point in chapter 5, and he'll bring it back later in chapter 7. So we'll see it in contrast there. Um, now note also uh, the verb tense change. I mentioned it here. This is all present tense, verses 1 through 4. You notice that? No one takes honor only when called by God, just as Aaron was. He is obligated, is beset with weakness. Okay, But now look what happens did not exalt himself, but was. We switch to past tense, meaning it was already done and it has ongoing effect. I think it's past tense. Let me look here. Come on, computer, wake up. Wake up, wake up, wake up. But was appointed. Uh, it's not telling me what word that is. Huh, hold on a second. Let's look over... How do I do this? Push all these buttons. Nope, that didn't do it. Where is my Bible software? There it is. All right, so we said, who was appointed? Oh, it was he. It's, it's assumed. It's not actually. That word isn't actually in the text. Look at that. Huh. What did, how did Dr. Kleinig translate? Who is appointed? Huh. Oh, I see. It's carried forward. Um, from verse 1, it's just assumed in that point of comparison, but it's not actually there. Um, thus, also, the Christ is not himself um, glorified, and there it's aorist passive, okay, that's right, or aorist active, excuse me, um, to become aorist passive infinitive. It's an infinitive. All right, that's the grammar. Sorry for the little nerding out there. I need to do a little nerding for myself so I understand what's going on here. Um, so it's a process that began with uh, God's acknowledgement of Jesus as his son and was in, is completed, um, brought into fullness with um, Jesus' enthronement to the right hand of the Father. All right. So uh, when did it begun? begin? Now we're talking about his, maybe his conception. He's acknowledges as God's son at his conception, right, with Mary. Um, uh, the one who, who has been conceived in you will be called the Son of the Most High, right? Luke 1. I think Matthew 1 as well. And then uh, also acknowledged as God's son, of course, at the baptism. This is my beloved son, right? Matthew 3 and uh, Luke 3, John 1. And so that's all about his priesthood and being high priest. Okay, let's see. I think that's probably sufficient on that. So now let's go to verse 7. I'll do 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. All right, so now that's similar. Um, but again, past tense, offered, heiress uh, passive, or heiress active, excuse me, participle. Offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard, all past tense, so it's completed action, because of his reverence. We want to understand this as past tense. It's a Greek tense called aorist, but you get the idea. All right, although he was a son, I would say the son, or son, he was son. A is not actually in there. He learned obedience through what he suffered. All right, now this is going to get us uh, into a pretty complicated conversation, but, uh, well, we'll get into it, because why not? It's, it's between the active and passive obedience of Jesus. Have you ever done a study on this? I don't know. Just asking, you know, between the the passive, meaning he's obedient in simply obeying the Father's will because he can't help but obey his Father, and active, he chooses to do the Father's will. Okay, so we'll have to dig into this a little bit. Um, I would say what we're seeing here in verses 7 and 8 is that uh, we're, we're learning how God trains Jesus, if you like. I mean, he grew in stature and wisdom before God and men, right? We, we learn that. Uh, as he visits the temple, the boy Jesus, right? How he's prepared um, as the high priest 
uh, for the office. Um, even though he's God's eternal son, even before his incarnation, he had to experience, and he does experience, the full extent of human weakness in order to be a truly sympathetic high priest, in the same way that uh, the high priest Aaron and those who followed him understood being beset with weakness. So Jesus, too, suffers in every way that we are, yet without sin, as we saw back in chapter 4, all right? Uh, 4 verse 15. And so just like the high priest, so here's a point of not uh, distinction, but of similarity. Just like the high, high priest, the Israelite priest, Jesus experiences human weakness and suffering. To prepare him, though, to present offerings to God on behalf of the people, right? So that he can sympathize with us. And so what's being pictured here is, is pretty cool, I think. <coughs> Excuse me. Another drink. What's being pictured here is pretty cool. It's uh, the Son of God being a student or an apprentice. Uh, a paideia, we'll see that later. I think in chapter 10, that term is used frequently. Um, an apprentice. And during his period of apprenticeship, that's his, um, well, human training, if you like, the days of his flesh, uh, his human life on earth from conception to death, he's being prepared at, into his vocation of high priest, invoking, um, making invocation for the people. Um, so this is like in Proverbs, right? Um, good students in Proverbs who learned wisdom by listening to their teacher um, and then obeying them in the school of life and practicing that piety with right reverence, right? We even see that here in 7, uh, which is how Dr. Kleining translated it. Having been heard as a right, or as because of his, yeah, oi labaya, which is his, his good reverence, his right reverence. I like that right reverence. That's a good translation. Okay. Um, now, as I said, this lesson about his obedient piety, his living the faith, well, living, living the life that he's been given has two sides to it. A passive side, meaning it's received, and then an active side, meaning it's done. Right? The passive side is his quote-unquote obedience in suffering, right? So um, the, his Pasca, Pasco. So this is, he suffered all kinds of things, right? Um, all kinds of abuse, ultimately culminating in his trial and his crucifixion. He endured the penalty of sin for sinners and the effects of sin um, on their victims, right? So I'll say that again. He, he, he endured the penalty of sin for sinners and the effects of sinners' sins upon their victims, right? So this is something we don't often think about, that Jesus died for the sins that we com commit, but also died for the, the experience of our sin that others feel, or experience, the ex their experience of our sin against them, right? This is something we don't often forget, or we don't often think about. You actually need to be forgiven for what other people do to you that is sinful. I mean, how often, uh, this happened to me often in, in, my, in my pastoral ministry, that uh, a great sin had been committed against them. I think uh, I had a man come to me, I preached about abortion, and he came to me and had said that his wife had had multiple abortions in secret, and he didn't find out till later, um, and that they, they, they were childless because she kept aborting their children. And, uh, you know, it was on his conscience. Right. We said this after church on a Sunday. Like I'm looking around at everybody. Oh, I hope, right. and apparently he had told other people, but, um, but he still carried it with him, right? And he needed he needed to hear a word of forgiveness that particularly applied to that, all right? So normally I don't talk about other people's sins, but I mean it's really remarkable. And again, it was <laughs> it was set out in the narthex with everybody standing around, which was kind of wow. You really, um, admitting to that. But of course, that's the mutual consolation of the brethren too. So there you go. Um, so again, suffering not only your sin, but the sin, the experience of, of your sin upon that others experience from you. But even more than that, he also suffered under the threat of death, right? Um, which lays uh, heavy upon all humanity. Of course, that's uh, run through in the Psalms, talking about um, how we are beset by the, the pangs and terrors of death, and then he entraps them and drags them down into death's domain. Uh, maybe for that, we should look at a psalm. 
How about Psalm 18? Let's look at that. Just give you an example. <laughs> Maybe verse 5, I think, is right. Oh, that's not. That's Matthew. Psalm 18, verse 5. There we go. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Or maybe also Psalm 88 would be a good example. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. And then this is incredible. This is Jesus praying. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. Think of the disciples. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Right? So he, he goes down, he's put down into the, the depths of the pit. He's cast into the grave, but he takes the snares and um, pangs and terrors of death and entangles them in himself. Right? Well, we pray this Psalms. Yeah, we pray Psalm 88 uh, at the Good Friday Tenebrae service, actually. That's a lovely thing. All right, there's Hebrews 1. That's not what we're looking at. All right, we are here, Hebrews 7, 8, 9. Okay, good. All right, so again, this is passive. It's all put upon him, right? But he, he experiences the pangs and terrors of death, but they're placed, his wrath, God's wrath is placed heavy upon him, the wrath for sin, right? So the suffering of Jesus, however, has trained him in true obedience to God. Um, so Jesus is tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. We saw back in verse four, or chapter four. So what is his act of obedience, right? Though he is son, I, think, I don't think there's an A in there. I don't know why they put the A in there. A son, there's only one son. Uh, though being the son, I think we want to put the son with a capital S. Though being the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So he passively receives suffering, but he learns then um, active obedience. And what is active obedience? that he prays, right? It's a life of prayer um, that will be delivered out of death through him. Uh, this all comes up in chapter 7, so um, we're going to have to hold off on that a little bit, but um, think about how he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think how he's often making intercession for the people um, in an in a isolated place or in a desolate place. Um, think about how he prays even while he's passively receiving the suffering of the whole world upon his shoulders at the cross, but he prays actively for their forgiveness. Right? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So he offers petitions. See this back in verse 7? Prayers and supplications. Petitions and supplications. This is all cross language, with loud cries and tears. So we have the garden, we have the cross. Uh, a lot of times it seems to be in hit... Um, um, it seems to be what hidden, I guess, from the disciples and those around him. Um, and, and what the preacher teacher here is, is leading us to understand is that actually Jesus' whole life is one of, of prayer and supplication um, for, the, for people. It's, it's prayerful priestly service. Because remember, this is all past tense. That's what he's been about from the very beginning. Even when he's, um, you know, the boy Jesus in the temple. He's making priestly service. Okay. Um, prayers and supplications with loud cry and tears. What, what that's meant to um, evoke, I think, is that he prays for everything, for every kind of human need, from the necessities of life to the refuge, from refuge to enemies, from help and trouble to relief from deep distress. It covers all kinds of praying. Spoken petitions, full-body supplication, vehement cries, heartbroken tears, and for this, I mean, you don't have, this is why I think he just quoted Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. You want to know how Jesus prays for you? Pray the Psalms yourself, and you'll hear how he prays for you, how he knows. And, exp and I know it's a little bit 
timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, that, to quote the doctor, that the Psalms, written long before the, Jesus was incarnate, are the very things that Jesus prayed in his earthly ministry, and also then are the words of those private prayers that he prayed for the people, even the, even the prayers from the cross, like say Psalm 22. Um, so if you, look at the, if you look at the Psalms, you'll see um, lament, you'll see thanksgiving, you'll see praise, right? But, um, you know, the Psalter, the Psalter is his prayer book. Um, maybe verses 7 through 9 sound similar to another psalm. A psalm of lament. Let's look at Psalm 116. I think that's a good example. Yeah, here we go. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol lay hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, God is, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Right, and it, it just keeps going and going. What shall I render to the Lord? Hey, that's from Divine Service Setting 1 and 2. I'll lift up the cup of salvation. Right? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints, of his saints. All right. So Psalm 116, a good example of maybe what's going on there in Hebrews 5. <clears throat> All right, excuse me. I decided to have dinner right before we started, and apparently dinner is still in my throat. That's <laughs> uh, so it goes. All right. Uh, let's see. Is there anything else I wanted to say there? Nope. I think we got the Psalter. Um, so Jesus learns obedience from what he suffered, right? So we have that passive suffering, but then we have the active obedience. Um, I don't think it's just referring to his passion and death upon the cross, although that's absolutely true. Um, I think it includes all the evil he suffered in his life upon the earth, right? Um, from the temptation in the wilderness. Well, we don't even have to go that far ahead. We could just go to, um, Herod to seeking to kill his life as the infant, uh, infant child. All right, so he is the model student, the perfect son, right here we see in verse 8. Um, listening, oh, for listening obedience to the Father's wisdom, um, that's what it means to be a, good, a God-fearing student. Suffering was part of his training, his education as a student of God, a candidate for the high priesthood, just as correction was an aspect of the Father's training of his sons. Okay, so again, paideia, oh, it comes in, ch- in chapter 12, so we'll learn all about Jesus Paideia, his instruction of us, that we be pedagogued, you know that word. All right. Now, verses 9 and 10. Um, tell of Je- this is now telling us uh, of Jesus' earthly preparation. Well, we just heard about his earthly preparation for the uh, eternal priesthood, the heavenly priesthood. And now we see the culmination of that in his ordination as high priest, being made perfect. All right. And again, the word there is teleao, uh, from which we get complete or ending, or ended. So he was perfected by his prayers and deliverance and God's answer to those prayers, that, that the Father raised him up on the third day. And now he sits at God's right hand. Uh, by raising Jesus from the dead and enthroning him as his high priest, God brought Jesus to the goal of his earthly pedagogy, his training, as we talked about. Um, so what happens in 7 and 8 is, re- is really reversed in 9 and 10, right? 7 and 8 he's, he, he's, is his humiliation, and then 9 and 10 is really his exaltation, if you like. So the obedience that he learned on earth, he now requires of his disciples. Uh, but the deliverance from death that, that he um, gives, actually, is what he now offers. All right, what else do we want to talk about there? Um, the order of Melchizedek, we talked about that being eternal, designated by God, eternal salvation for all who obey him, that is, listen to him. Uh, it's up akuo, that means to, to, to hear upon, right? So it's hearing, it's faith, it's trust. Um, by the way, 
you can't hear if your ears are stopped. So ears are a wonderful example of what it means to be faithful. To be faithful is to have your ears open. Uh, I was telling the kids this earlier tonight too. Um, when you when you ask for something in prayer, maybe open your hands to receive, right? And do this, you know, show me the money. <laughs> All right. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, before we conclude here about this whole active and passive obedience. Um, there's actually quite a bit of conversation about this in the formula of Concord. So now the question is, can I put this on your screen? Let's see if I can do it. All right. So there's a bunch of books. There is Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions. Oh, oh it's working. Oh, look at how small it is. Isn't that beautiful? All right. Formula of Concord. Uh, epitome. I'm gonna, I'll make it bigger in a minute. Don't worry. Epitome 3, the righteousness of faith before God. All right, let's do Epitome 3, paragraph 3 through 6. Affirmative statements. There we go. All right. So I'll make move that over there. And then we need bigger text. Bigger text. Bigger text. How do I make it bigger? Bigger, bigger, bigger. Nope, that didn't. Pinch to zoom didn't do it. Uh, oh, up here, this little box. Yeah, there we go. And oh, now you can see and read. Beautiful. There we go. All right. So again, <clears throat> uh, we'll back up a little bit. The chief question in this controversy. So this is what happens with the uh, formula of Concord is that uh, Lutherans were fighting amongst each other. <laughs> and so this confession was written to try to respond to um, the arguments among Lutherans. So the first thing he does um, is lay out what the controversy is. And then we'll talk about uh, what we should agree upon. Okay, this is again Article 3 of the formula, the righteousness of faith before God. It is unanimously confessed in our churches, in accordance with God's word and the meaning of the Augsburg Confession, that we poor sinners are justified before God and saved alone through faith in Christ. Christ alone is our righteousness, who is true God and man, because in him the divine and human natures are personally united with each other. Jeremiah 23, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 5. The question has arisen, according to which nature is Christ our righteousness? All right, so you have to define righteousness, of course, too, right? And that is to live in faith before God or live obedient to God. All right, from this, two opposing errors have arisen in some churches. And again, this is some of our churches, Lutheran churches. In 15, between Luther's death and 1570, 78, I think, 77, when this was finally published. One side has held that Christ, according to his divinity alone, is our righteousness, if he dwells in us through faith. Contrasted with this divinity dwelling in us through faith, the sins of all people must be regarded as a drop of water compared to a great ocean. Others, on the contrary, have held that Christ is our righteousness before God, according to his human nature alone, that is his active obedience as man, right? One, he's our righteousness because he's God, and of course he's perfect and righteous. Make sense? All right, so two opposing views, and of course the point here is uh, neither is right. Okay, so affirmative statements. The pure teaching of the Christian church is against both errors just mentioned. <laughs> both errors. Okay, let's, what does the Bible say? Against both errors just mentioned, we unanimously well, mostly, almost entirely, believe, teach, and confess that Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 30. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom and from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All right. Neither according to his divine nature alone, nor according to his human nature alone. Hmm. But it is the entire Christ who is our righteousness according to both natures, both as God and as man, Son of God and Man, now you can see how this all plays out in Hebrews, right? We just had, he's a, he's a priest um, who's been appointed by God because he's, he's God's son. You are my son, today I've begotten you, right? Um, but he's also able to sympathize with us and um, actively obeys the Father's will in, as true man, right? All right, so that's what we're going to deal with here. In his, in his obedience alone, which as God and man, he offered to the Father even to his death, Philippians 2, 
became obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. He merited for us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. For it is written, from Romans 5, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. One man's disobedience, right? So that's Adam, and then by one man, that's Jesus, obedience will be made righteous. So it's talking about his human nature there. Um, but he, Philippians, of course, refers to him in his divinity. We believe, teach, and confess what our righteousness before God is this, or that, yeah, God forgives our sins out of pure grace, gift, without any work, merit, or worthiness of ours, proceeding, present, or following. So they take what's in the catechism without any merit or work, you know, without any merit or worthiness in me, for all this is my duty to thank and pray, serve, and obey him, right? You know that. And uh, they expand upon the small catechism. Uh, it's not only work, merit, or worthiness in us, but it's even that which precedes us, that is which is present in us, or that will follow after. He presents and credits to us the righteousness of Christ's obedience. Because of this righteousness, we are received into grace by God and regard, regarded as righteous. We believe, teach, and confess that faith alone is the means and instrument through which we lay hold of Christ. So in Christ, we lay hold of that righteousness that benefits us before God, for whose sake faith is credited to us for righteousness. All right, we're going to keep going. We believe, teach, and confess that this faith is not a bare knowledge of Christ's history, but it is God's gift. By this gift, we come to the right knowledge of Christ as our Redeemer in the world, um, or in the word of the gospel, and we trust in him that for the sake of his obedience alone, there's that word, we have by grace the forgiveness of sins and are regarded as holy and righteous before God the Father and eternal save, eternally saved. All right, now this is the epitome. This is the short, by the way, the short uh, uh, formula. There's the long version of the formula, which is called the solid declaration. And it's many, 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 how many, 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 many more paragraphs. All right. This word um, obedient or obey comes up frequently through uh, even the solid declaration here. All right. <clears throat> so um, there's more, there's more weakness, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to find the next one. I think it's here. Oh, yeah. We got the exclusive particles without of grace, without merit, without law, without works, not of works. I, f I forgot that was in the... I always wonder where I got that expression, exclusive particles. It's right here in the formula. Oh, beautiful. Now I know where I get it. <laughs> the particuli exclusivi. All right. Uh, so let's see. I'll maybe try to summarize some of this. I wanted to show you one more paragraph, though. I'm just trying to get to it. Oh, contrary statements. That's right. Christ is our, um, so contrary statements. We, re we reject and condemn all the following errors. Christ is our righteousness according to his divine nature alone. Christ is our righteousness according to his human nature alone. All right, good so far. Where the, the righteousness of faith is spoken of in the sayings of the prophets and apostles, the words justify and to be justified are not to mean, quote, declaring or being declared free from sins and obtaining the forgiveness of sins, but they actually mean, this is condemned by the way, they actually mean, quote, being made righteous before God because of love infused by the Holy Spirit, virtues and the works following them. All right, so we're not justified by works, we're not justified um, by some kind of infused grace, infusia, infusia, gratia, or however it goes in Latin, or by our own virtue. All right? Faith not only looks to Christ's obedience, but also to his divine nature, since it dwells and works in us. Again, this is condemned. Faith is the short sort of trust in Christ's obedience that can exist and remain a person even when there's no genuine repentance. All right, So you don't get the benefits of Christ's obedience without faith and without repentance, because, of course, repentance is part of faith. All right, so there's many more that could, much more that could be read there. But you can see how um, the, uh, the formulator, if you like, is, is really um, reflecting upon this, this whole section here, as well as Ephesians 2, I think, uh, for it. So uh, I'm going to read you a little summary of all of the uh, what the uh, formula, both the solid declaration and epitome, say about Christ's obedience. All right. Taken by itself, 
uh, chapters 5, 1 through 10, this is all from Dr. Kleinig, teaches the congregation that their eternal salvation depends entirely on Christ's perfect obedience rather than their own all-too-inadequate obedience. That topic is explored at some length in the formula of Concord in the discussion of Christ's righteousness. Unlike any other person, the obedience of Jesus was perfect. This was so because of the entire obedience of his entire person as both God and man, as we talked about. During his whole earthly life, from his most holy birth to his death. Each of these is significant. His perfect and entire obedience was both active and passive. Active in keeping God's law completely and passive in enduring suffering and death without sin. His perfect obedience makes him the perfect mediator between God and man. Both because he actively obeys the Father's will and passively endures the suffering and death of our sin without his own sin. Mm -hmm. His entire person, with both his divine and human natures, is involved in our salvation. The whole Christ, right? It's very important. His divinity in making perfect satisfaction for the sins of the world and his humanity in mediating between God and us, being the man, right? So Jesus, uh, as you saw in what I read, um, oh, from uh, what they quoted from Romans chapter 5, right? That Jesus is the man who represents all men, all people, from Adam, all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, are represented um, in Christ as now righteous, right? The one who dies for our sins. It's really beautiful. Uh, By his whole life of perfect obedience, he undoes the ravages of original sin on our whole lifetime. That's from Solid Declaration 3, uh, paragraphs 22 and 58. His obedience in representing us before God and in representing God to us is vicarious in, in our place. It is done on our behalf and in our stead. His perfect obedience as both God and man is reckoned to us as righteousness, our righteousness before God, when we trust in him. And that's in uh, Solid Declaration, paragraph 58, or Article 3, paragraph 58. So through him and his perfect obedience, we receive pardon and reconciliation, adoption as God's children, and eternal salvation. Through him, we share in God's righteousness and holiness. All right. Actually, let's go back to this one. I guess take one more minute. I want to show you that how much longer the Solid Declaration is. So let me open that up. Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration, Article Three. Okay, and what did I say? Paragraph fifty-eight. All right. Let's see if we can find that. Da, da, da. Exclusive terms. Our righteousness. Here we go. This is really important about uh, righteousness. But I wanted to show you paragraph 58, because I think it's really beautiful here. Oh, really, 57 is too. Oh, man. As is mentioned above. All right, so on this topic. The obedience not only of one nature, but of the entire person is a complete satisfaction and atonement for the human race. Once and for all. All sins forgiven, right? By this obedience, God's eternal, unchangeable righteousness revealed in the law has been satisfied. So our righteousness benefits us before God and is revealed in the gospel. Faith relies upon this before God, which God credits to faith, as is written in Romans 5. For as by one man's, we have just read that. Also, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1. The righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2.4, quoted in Romans 1. All right, now here's this paragraph. This is, this is just brilliant. Neither Christ's divine nor human nature by itself is credited to us for righteousness, but only the obedience of the person who is at the same time God and man. And faith thus values Christ's person because it is made under the law, Galatians 4, for us and bore our sins. And this is all the act of obedience. And in his going to the Father, he offered to his heavenly Father for us poor sinners his entire complete obedience, active, right? This extends from his holy birth even unto death. In this way, he has covered all our disobedience which dwells in our nature, that's original sin, and its thoughts, words, and works. So disobedience is not charged against us for condemnation. It is pardoned and forgiven out of pure grace alone for Jesus's, or for Christ's sake. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Um, so, what does that mean? 
<laughs> let's kind of tidy this up with a bow. What is this whole section about here, right here? How, how does this benefit us? Um, Jesus is the perfect model of what we might call Christian life or Christian piety, and f- thus the piety um, for those who obey him, who follow after him. It's a piety that is both passive and active in obedience, all right, by which we listen to God's voice and respond to him in prayer. We receive everything that he sends our way passively, right? Uh, I'm trying to think what God ordains is always good. It's a great hymn for this. Uh, whether he sends me joy or, or sadness, I receive it all, right, passively, um, because it's for my benefit. Um, somebody asked on Facebook um, about, uh, you know, why or how to approach COVID-19. It was in the thread that I, uh, comment I, or post I, I made this morning about not hearing about international, um, the effects of COVID on, on the international scene. It's really um, been hidden from us and, and what's being done politically actually around COVID-19 internationally. It's not compl- completely hidden, but it's not widely reported. And I think you need to be attentive to that uh, because you can see a lot of, um, I'd say nefarious agendas at, at work internationally. Um, that are also being attempted here nationally. And uh, hopefully you and I, as patriots, will rise up against, um, really, tyranny is what they're proposing. But regardless, not to get too political. Patriots. Oh, passively receiving whatever the Lord sends, right? And it had to do with COVID-19. Did the Lord allow COVID-19 to spread and allowing us to experience this? He is. Um, uh, he's allowing it passively. We're receiving it passively, right? But what is the purpose of it? Like any kind of disaster, um, sickness, disease, um, cancer, um, death of a loved one, etc. Um, it is a time for grieving and sorrow. Um, it's also a time to be attentive, but especially attentive to repentance and faith, right? Repentance for the sake of faith, All right? So we passively receive it, and then we take what we've passively received, all the things the Lord. Um, gives us or allows us to experience, and uh, we turn to him in prayer, right? So if we receive sorrow, we pray to him that he would turn our sorrow into joy. If we receive something in joy, then we give him praise and thanksgiving, right? Um, If we uh, experience temptation, then we turn to him for strength to resist temptation, for that way of escape that he promises, right? So we take the, we passively receive and we actively obey. then that's really, um, I think that's the kind of Christian life that, that he's establishing for us, that he's showing for us in his own priestly service. An, an obedience by which we rely upon God for everything and receive eternal salvation from Jesus. All right, so Jesus is the, as we'll see in chapter 12, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. All right, there's actually a hymn. Uh, where's my hymnal go? It's, oh, it's under the pile here. 452. I don't know. Let's see, it's it's an English hymn, I believe. Oh, perfect life of love. Yeah, we haven't sang this. Oh, it was in Lutheran hymnal. All right. Oh, perfect life of love. All, all is finished now. All that he left is thrown above to do for us below. No work is left undone of all the Father willed. His, his toil, his sorrows, one by one, the scriptures have fulfilled. You see, active and passive. No pain that we can share, but he has felt its smart. All forms of human grief and care have pierced that tender heart. Right? So he suffered in every way as we have, yet without sin. This is really a lovely hymn. Oh, it's it's TLH tune, but it's not a TLH hymn. It's a new te- newer text or new text to us. Uh, it's a Holy Week hymn. So remind me, we'll sing this one. Oh, look at that! It even connects back to. Um, they didn't put Hebrews at the bottom. It connects back to chapter four. In every time of need, before the judgment throne, Thy work, O Lamb of God, I'll plead. Thy merits, not mine own. All right. So four fifty-two. Remember that we should uh, sing that during Holy Week. All right. Very good. I think we'll uh, leave it off there, um, because as he says about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Um, So we'll jump back in there when we uh, resume class. And I don't, like I said, no class next week. Um, Then we'll be in Advent, then we'll have Christmas, and then we'll have New Year's. 
uh, and then we can resume class. All right. So uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, I hope this has been a blessing to you. And uh, by the way, uh, okay, I just mentioned the schedule. Oh, and the other thing is, I talked to our internet service provider. Actually, rather than spend too much time preparing this, um, I did call them up, and uh, yes, it's because we've had terrible internet service because. Um, the system is oversold and there's a lot more users than typical because of course, Random Lake has sent the kids home. So, um, and a lot of people are working from home too. So, um, they're going to try to, uh, move us over onto a, another piece of hardware on the tower, um, that has more uh, service available. So hopefully that will repair our streaming from church. He's going to talk to me more tomorrow. He's going to, it's going to take some time. But we're in the top four of the users on the tower, which makes sense with video streaming uh, and then all the students and whatnot. So um, we're, we're getting what we pay for. I mean, we're not paying, we're not overusing, you know, or abusing the service, but um, right now it's pretty much maxed out. So uh, tomorrow morning we'll be streaming, God willing, but uh, we'll do our best. All right. Lord be with you all, and we'll see you in the morning for daily prayer. Have a good evening.